description of how these things flew, like jumping from one point to another, so, and, and he, he told his friends, uh, and uh, then they told other people, and his report preceded him to Pendleton, uh, where people said, he told his friends he had seen these things, and he, Tonight on the show, I'm honored to have the author of Three Minutes in June, the UFO sighting that changed the world. This is the incident and the origin of the phrase flying saucers. Dr. Bruce McAbee is coming up right after this. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. Tonight in the studio, I have Dr. Bruce McAbee, an American optical physicist formerly employed by the U.S. Navy. Bruce is also a UFO researcher and has written many papers and books on the subject. And I'm grateful he could join me here tonight. Dr. Bruce McAbee, thank you very much and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. In June 1947, Kenneth Arnold, an experienced pilot, saw nine unusual objects flying at an extraordinary speed near Mount Rainier in Washington. The incident was the origin of the phrase flying saucer and started a worldwide fascination with UFOs. Over the years, skeptics have offered no less than 14 prosaic explanations for what Arnold saw. Dr. McAbee, what happened near Mount Rainier in 1947? Virtually every description you get of the Kenneth Arnold sighting talks about these flashes. You can see the object go past Mount Rainier and then continue southward past Mount Adams, you can see, track them by their flashes all, all the way down to Mount Adams, about 50 miles away. Well, all the histories mention the flashes, but I was the first person to uh, do a, an analysis of it. I see I was puzzled by his claim that he could see flash of light, see the light intensity on the surface of his aircraft increase enough to notice it without realizing, without knowing what was causing the flash. The, the surface of his airplane was being illuminated by sunlight. The sun was behind him a bit and oh, oh, behind him and overhead at four o'clock in the afternoon. And the sun bright, the, the direct sunlight was uh, quite bright on the surface of his aircraft. So then if a, another source of light were to come along and increase the brightness sufficiently for Arnold to notice it, that must be a pretty big, pretty bright flash of light to be able to beat the sun, as it were. 
So this supposedly, this flash of light was coming from maybe 50 miles away. And uh, if, if Arnold had been correct that it was a reflection of light off the sun, you have to imagine the sunlight going down, hitting the object, and there are nine of them, and uh, he can see these, see these things flashing. <coughs> In order for the sunlight to uh, light up the surface of an aircraft by reflection off the UFO would require uh, something pretty potent, I thought. In other words, the, the, the normal sunlight on the surface of the aircraft was sort of like a, a reference value, and then you had to have 5, 10, 15, 20% increase in sunlight and light hitting the surface due to a flash off these objects. So I calculated how much light from the sun would go down, bounce off of one of these objects at some size of the object, like a mirror, and then bounce and then travel over to his airplane. And it turned out that the sunlight bouncing like that just was not strong enough to make a noticeable increase of light on the surface of his aircraft. On the surface of his aircraft, I was looking at sunlight and then the sunlight plus uh, a flash. And you had to take the sunlight, bounce it off the, uh, do a calculation that reflected it from the, uh, a UFO surface, flat surface of this, one of these disc-like objects, uh, and then trans transport the uh, flash of light through 50 miles of atmosphere. And when I guess the airplane, it's still brighter than the, uh, the our, a sizable fraction of the sunlight brightness. That's what you would require if I were correct that it was a flash. And as I've argued in the appendix of the book, this is an optical physics calculation with a complete cut with these formulas and so on for uh, somebody who wants to uh, try to do their own calculation. I, my bottom line was the flashes probably were not sunlight reflections. They may have been something like laser beam um, intensity uh, beaming out and hitting his airplane. Why that would, why that would happen, I don't know, but they might have been using uh, something like a laser to measure the distance between them and, and his airplane. We've done that, it's a laser, uh, laser distance measurement. So were, was there just one beam or were there several beams coming from several craft at the same time? Each craft would, would get, get occasionally aligned just right so it would hit, the, the flash would hit. He, he said he thought after he thought about it, well, he thought that the flash was coming from a small area on the bottom of the craft, uh, rather than the, the mirror reflection would be coming from the whole body of the craft. He thought these things were going to a thousand feet in diameter or something like that. Uh, he, he, his sighting is very important to analyze because there weren't any reports or no national reports of UFOs uh, before his sighting. And his sighting attracted interest because he was an experienced pilot, knew the, what would be ordinary up in the atmosphere and so on. And a very important just the fact that he uh, decided to make some measurements. He uh, thought that, well, if they keep going in a straight line, as they were going, as they appeared to be going when they got to Mount Rainier, he started timing their, paying attention to a clock that was on his dashboard. He decided to try to time their flight from Mount Rainier down to Mount Adams, 60 miles away. And he did that using the uh, clock on his dashboard. And as they went past Mount Rainier, it ran, ran, it ran 3 p.m. And then when they went past Mount Adams, 60 miles south, his clock showed 102 seconds. That corresponds to about 1,700 miles an hour, uh, three, three times larger practically than the fastest jet we had at the time. He also uh, compared the size of these objects with the uh, angular size of a, of a known aircraft that was heading northward. Behind him, uh, 15, 15 or so miles away, he thought, uh, and uh, that is what led to the idea that these things might be 
as much as a uh, thousand feet in diameter. Uh, and his, his measurements, but in particular the speed measurement, caught the interest of everybody. Uh, nobody thought he was a nut. They assumed he was actually reporting what he saw. And uh, so it was treated seriously and published it in, in newspapers. The story went around the world in a couple of days, and then people were looking for confirmation, and they uh, found other, other reports were made uh, starting on the 24th of June, when his was, well, his was reported on the 25th and 26th of June, radio and newspapers, local, and then uh, picked up by national news services and transmitted around the world that he had seen these strange objects and other people started to look for them and there were lots of things in the atmosphere at that time. The first big UFO flap was uh, from the middle of June uh, to uh, the middle or so of July in uh, 1947. And his sighting was the first one to be publicized like that. As soon as it was, as soon as it was published in the newspapers, other people began to report to newspapers that they had seen things too. There had been earlier sightings before Arnold, but the earlier witnesses hadn't said anything about it. They didn't want to be called crazy. <laughs> but Arnold knew he wasn't crazy, and his his acquaintances knew he was an experienced pilot and certainly not crazy to do all. You don't have a crazy person flying around the mountains the way Arnold did as part of his business trips. So anyway, uh, I would recommend reading this book to see how uh, the... Uh, Air Force handled the problem of explaining away his uh, Arnold sighting, which is ultimately what happened, as the Air Force called it a mirage. It's made no sense in the uh, optical con context of the optical physics involved uh, as, as Arnold saw these things flying past Mount Rainier. So did Arnold actually, how did he gain notoriety back then for this story? Did he report it to authorities or, or the military? Or how did um, everybody first find out about uh, Kenneth Arnold? Oh, well, after the sighting was over, he had been flying eastward to go to Yakima, Washington. And uh, he landed at the airport, told some of his friends, and then as part of his business trip, he was jumping out taking off from Yakima and going to fly west to Pendleton, Oregon. Uh, his friends are, he told his friends he had seen these things and he, how, how fast they seemed to be going. And then he, what really puzzled him was he couldn't see wings, he couldn't see engines, he couldn't see a vertical stabilizer, he couldn't see anything that seemed normal. The shape seemed to be uh, a thin disc, semi-disc, a semi-circular circle on the front and a sort of a convex point on the back end. Uh, one of the uh, nine discs that he saw was, uh, had uh, two uh, curved surfaces at the uh, rear. It was different from the others. And he thought maybe that was the, uh, the lead object. But in any case, um, he uh, gave this description of how he, these things flew like jumping from one point to another, so sort of, and, and he he told his friends, uh, and uh, then they told other people, and his report preceded him to uh, Pendleton, where people started asking him questions. And he went into a newspaper office, figuring he he should report this to somebody because he he said he went to the FBI and uh, uh, some other offices, and they were closed. Uh, for some reason, nobody was around or whatever. He um, thought that he should report it because he thought these things are coming coming from the north. They might be some Soviet type of uh, development of aircraft, and so he should alert the United States to what was what was what he saw. And uh, as I said, he told some news people, and they didn't. Treat this as silly season, which is what happened years later uh, for many UFO flaps. Um, he, they, they assumed that he was telling that thing as accurately as he could, and they're all puzzled at these speeds. And if you look and go back and look at newspapers clippings at the time, which I've got a bunch of them in the book, uh, you can see how 
everybody was impressed. Nobody thought that Arnold was nuts. They assumed that his descriptions were reasonably accurate. He uh, he calculated and intentionally reduced the calculated velocity of these objects to about 1,200 miles an hour, which is still uh, almost 500 miles an hour faster than the fastest jet, jet that we had available. <clears throat> and other people, as I said, started to, when they picked, saw his report, other people who had seen strange things in the sky made, made their reports. And over a period of time of about a month and a half, um, there were at least 800 and some reports in newspapers throughout the United States. It started off in the Northwest area, Oregon, Washington, uh, Idaho, and the Northern California area, and then uh, spread throughout the United States. And virtually every state had at least one sighting before the 1947 flap was over. Then, of course, when the number of sightings had dropped down sufficiently so that there was no longer a flap, you might say, the Air Force by this time was already taking it seriously because the Air Force pilots were involved in sightings. Uh, the general press, however, began to look at it in a disparaging way. They, uh, without any direct confirmation, uh, similar to what Arnold had, uh, they began to trivialize the sightings. And then all sorts of uh, explanations were offered for what people were seeing, reflections and mirrors and glass, uh, Moats in the eye, mirage. Uh, more recent explanations included pelicans. So you can you can read in the book each one of these proposed explanations and how how it is refuted uh, by the data that Arnold Arnold's description of what happened. Interesting. So the question I have right now is that. If you see an object like that jumping from point to point with a rapid acceleration and deceleration, is there anything that you can infer about the propulsion or, or what's making it move through the uh, the atmosphere of the Earth? Well, Arnold was probably the first one to consider that, consider that this is a, a real puzzle. If it was a human being inside one of these objects, the human being could be battered to death uh, by the... Uh, jerky motions of the of the uh, object. And by the way, I forgot to mention that uh, when he was interviewed uh, on, the, on the 25th and 26th of, uh, of June, one of the uh, newspaper reporters picked up on Arnold's description of how they flew. He said one, one way of describing the way they flew would be like if you took a flat disc uh, or a saucer and skipped it on the water. And uh, somebody then went beyond saying that the motion was like a saucer to saying that the thing itself was a flying saucer. And this, of course, embedded a shape into the psyche, I guess, of the, of the human race that flying saucers are saucer-like objects, circular disks with some thickness even though that's not what Arnold intended to uh, imply. And, and in fact, he said they weren't completely circular. They had a convex uh, rear end. Now, I should mention that Arnold was not the only person to see these things. At the time, they were they flew past Mount Rainier about 3 o'clock, and a few hundred two seconds later, they flew past Mount Adams. There was a uh, prospector on Mount Adams. Said he, was, he said he was prospecting at 5,000 feet. These objects were probably about six or 7,000 feet. In any case, uh, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, these things went flying over his head. And uh, he uh, reported it to the Air Force. Uh, and then the FBI went and interviewed him on, on his sighting, and that's pretty solid. Furthermore, he said he noticed that he had a, a compass-type device, uh, which has a needle on it that rotates when it points to a line the Earth's magnetic field uh, at the location of the needle. And he says he had a compass like that, and it was wobbling back and forth as these things went over, and after they had disappeared in the clouds, the uh, compass went back to normal. So he got a, 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 
physical a physical trace case, you could say there is something about magnetism, I guess, associated with magnets going uh, past this uh, compass, changing the direction of the magnetic field. So over the next 70 years or so since that event, what or how many reasons have you or your colleagues come up with for that saucer shape? Has, has there been a lot of discussion? I know there has been, but I mean, how many how many um, different reasons have we come up with for that shape? Well, I mean, why they why they are saucer shaped? Some of them, exactly. Uh, the first, the first ones seem to be mostly saucers. And uh, by the way, I forgot to mention that I was just discussing the uh, the saucer, how the term flying saucers came about. As uh, Arnold was seeing these things making their jerky motions, high acceleration followed by deceleration to a stop mode, like a thing. He thought, well, they couldn't be human beings because they get crushed to death by the accelerations and decelerations. This is the same comment that's been made with respect to uh, the uh, famous videos recently shown, taken by uh, Navy air, uh, aircraft, Navy fighter jets. <clears throat> yeah, I know they do. They do sound similar. Um, I know. Uh, so, go ahead. Saucer shape. Not the um, saucer shape was not the only shape. Over months and years, we've seen other shapes as well. Most commonly, uh, cigar-shaped things, and then uh, in our recent years, triangles. Uh, but you, you don't find too many saucer reports of saucer-shaped devices now. Uh, so you might guess at some sort of craft. Uh, uh, I don't know, just aren't flying around here uh, anymore. <clears throat> but whatever, whatever the triangles are, there's been a lot of them in the last ten or so years. Right. I know that one of the one of the the theories that people have come up with for propulsion of a craft like that is um, gravity amplification. But we also hear about you know how how weak gravity actually is um what kind of amplification would create something like that for an object that would be a thousand feet or so in diameter well uh, uh, to say gravity gravity modification or uh, gravity propulsion or whatever is easy, those words are easy to say but to figure out how to do it uh people have they made suggestions that if you could distort the gravitational field uh, in a certain way, uh, you might be able to get propulsion, uh, propulsion of a form that would uh, uh, not crush a, a human being in spite of accelerations and decelerations. But uh, I guess nobody really knows how to modify gravity well enough to, to uh, create something like that, black hole or a warm wormhole, a tunnel. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about uh, quantifying acceleration or of an identified craft? Because you, you've written a paper on that, and I read that. Um, each sighting, you know, has so many different variables. So how do you uh, quantify the acceleration? You're talking about my acceleration paper on my website? Absolutely. Yes. I might mention my website, brumac.mysite.com. B-R-U-M-A-C dot M-Y-S-I-T-E dot C-O-M. Brumac.mysite.com. You scan down the front, the front opening page, ask a whole bunch of the articles that I've written, uh, analyses of various UFO cases, and you come to a paper called Acceleration. And I point out that speed is nice, but acceleration is where it's at. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the the challenge uh, to get this acceleration going. And I did this analyze a, video, a UFO video that shows an object was hovering and stationary, and the, the uh, person videotaping the thing held the camera steady, and, and so this image. The object was a little 
shining around the dot instead of the screen. Uh, it's just sort of bouncing a little bit, a little bit of wobble noise, the hand vibration. And all of a sudden, the people, whatever's on the inside of it, put the pedal to the metal. And when it did that, it zipped off, and five frames of the video went from the center of the uh, screen off the edge. And you can actually see the acceleration, the current, see the speed increasing. You can see the speed increase as a result of acceleration uh, by how far the uh, UFO image traveled in one frame time. So that, that turned out to be uh, 10, 12 Gs or something. It's been a long time since I read the paper, but I was able to calculate what the acceleration uh, of acceleration force would be have this thing zip off so fast that you can barely see it. When you play this video and look, uh, and you're watching carefully, you, you see the thing move, but it's off the screen before you realize what really has happened. And uh, you read that paper and you see a lot of uh, examples, several different examples of uh, acceleration going on. Uh, examples in the terms of people's, just people's observations, more or less like Kenneth Arnold seeing these objects flapping along, flipping and flapping as they go along. Even my grandmother was a witness where she saw a couple of round objects up in the sky that initially were headed westward and uh, made a right angle turn and headed north. And grandma was not a uh, uh, connoisseur of aerospace technology and stuff like that. But you did know that objects don't make right angle turns. How would that, um, what I want to know now is how would acceleration be different with gravity in a heavy atmosphere versus in a vacuum and no gravity? Could, could in principle, um, manipulating gravity work in both of those environments or would, you, would that require two different um, types of propulsion? Well, gravity in, in, a, in an atmosphere... Well, if you were, you know, let's let's just say, for example, that we had a craft that came from space and then came into the Earth's atmosphere. You have gravity, more gravity, um, versus uh, uh, in, in outer space, which which you may have no gravity and a vacuum. So they're two different types of environment, well, drastically different. You're seeing gravity as an attractive force, uh, as the object is any, any distance at all from the the center of the attraction, which would be the center of the planet. Uh, <clears throat> at any distance at all, you would have gravity pulling it in. You could, uh, if you try to stop it, then you are sort of moving this object off its uh, normal, what would be its normal timeline in the, uh, in the uh, gravitational field. Uh, people falling into this object towards the center of the gravitational field wouldn't feel anything anyway. If you're inside a box and the box is falling towards the center of the air, you don't notice any, any effect of gravity. You only notice an effect of gravity is you stop motion somehow, building a great big building you sit on top of. And uh, what's between you and the center of the earth is holding you in some position away from the earth and you feel then you feel the acceleration, you feel the gravity. Uh, acceleration is when you're actually changing your position in space, uh, increasing, either increasing or decreasing the amount of distance you travel each second, for example. Uh, so I guess you'd have to, I, I, I don't know as you would, uh, Use the same, well, it's a little confusing to try to decide what you can do with gravity. If you can, if you can modify it, which, which may be doubtful, but if you can modify the gravitational pull, you would then coast along uh, whatever speed you were going relative to the universe, I guess. You would uh, coast along at some constant speed, as long as there's no gravitational field nearby, 
so attractive to the, uh, the gravitational field that it would be no big masses anywhere. Uh, When you talk about an object that is capable of going from, let's say, zero to uh, 2,000 miles per hour um, in a relatively short period of time and space, but the acceleration is, is, is that incredible. Um, and then likewise, when you have that object at top speed and then bringing it back down to zero again, are, are those two, um, is, is, is acceleration and deceleration are those equal in the amount of energy that takes, or how does how does that work? And do you think that do you think it paper, matters? You're referring to the paper I did on the uh, the, the uh, Princeton radar, Princeton the name of the destroyer ship, right? Uh, right, Kevin Day, uh, Kevin Day's report of seeing these objects moving. Uh, slow speed horizontally at 28,000 feet, and then suddenly dropping down towards the surface of the ocean, dropping 28,000 feet in uh, about eight tenths of a second, uh, which would require uh, an acceleration downwards to, to get to the halfway point, for example, and then a deceleration, or it was an acceleration in the opposite direction, but to speed up to a very high speed halfway. And then you slam on the brakes and you slow down to the point where you're back, back out of zero speed when you get to the surface. And uh, his, his description of that happening in 0.78 seconds implies that whatever it was, uh, it was had an extreme uh, acceleration capability of 1,000 Gs or something. I forget the exact number now. It's been a long time since I did the calculation, but... Uh, there was nothing to play with, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, that's, that doesn't tell you how it does it. It just tells you that it did somehow do it. It, it got a tremendous acceleration in the downward direction, so it got up to a high speed, and then it reversed the direction of acceleration. So the acceleration effect was slowing it down to a point where it ultimately stopped near the surface of the ocean. This was an extremely high acceleration situation. And um, we don't have a, a craft even that's been invented here on the planet that would decelerate, let's say, 500 miles per hour in, in less than one second, right? In, in midair. Right. No, that, that's definitely not made here. So that, that acceleration and deceleration, I think to me, in my personal opinion, deceleration is, is more of a mystery than acceleration because, you know, the, the, there's nothing that exists that we know of that's an actual air brake, of course, that could do that. And, uh, acceleration opposite direction. Right. Acceleration in the direction opposite to where it's going. Exactly. It's going along at speed, uh, in some direction, and they put on the brakes, as it were, and slowing down to zero. Uh, and if you do that fast, it's just required with the same type of uh, accelerating force as speed up. To speed up and slow down are just relative event, relative uh, some uh, framework, framework of references. So then, other other than avoiding an object, um, I couldn't even see a practical application other than a demonstration of um, how amazing a technology that would be. Um, I, I wouldn't even be able to think of a practical application of that currently. Could you? Well, I suppose if you want a real stealthy method of stealing stuff, you can zip your way up to where it is, grab out it, and zip your way back. Uh, if, you can, if you can stand the acceleration in each case the acceleration to one direction and acceleration in the other direction so what are the physics of actual time travel on earth and do you think that we would have the material and, and the um, actually actually raw material in the future that would be capable of getting that done by humans 
that's a good question. Uh, I don't know whether we could do that using technologies that we've got now. Uh, yeah, uh, people who analyze, who, who study what might happen if you could warp space would say, well, if you can warp space and put somebody inside the space warp, uh, bunch up the, uh, gravitational space in front of us, uh, in front of a craft and stretch it out in the back of a craft. Um, well, maybe it's the other way around. I guess you bunch it up in the back of the craft and stretch it out in front, whatever. You could, if you could modify space that way, uh, around some, some ship, craft or whatever, uh, the creatures inside the craft wouldn't feel any acceleration at all because they would be going right along with the, uh, the gravitational field of, of the space that they're in. There are a lot of attempts to, to beat beat gravity and a lot of attempts to beat acceleration uh, are uh, handled in such a way that you can undergo a big acceleration uh, without getting yourself crushed. When you're reading about and researching about um, things like propulsion and, and um, what we're talking about tonight, what UFO researchers do you read and who do you think are getting really close to getting it right? Well, I, I personally have not really studied uh, that very much. My, my main contribution to uh, UFO research and so on has been to analyze sightings and decide which ones are real and which ones are not. Uh, and then document whatever uh, characteristics of these UFOs, uh, whatever the characteristics are, they can be compared one thing to another. Uh, I, I don't think anybody's got the uh, true clue yet as to how this works. Uh, these rapid accelerations and decelerations and things like popping in and out. In the acceleration paper which you read, I spent a lot of time talking about the nature of the eyeball, uh, seeing things, and it's, it's, the fact is that if something moves fast enough, you sort of can't see it, or you just see a, a dim blur or something like that. Uh, now that's not solving the problem of uh, acceleration and deceleration and gravity, that's just noticing that if they had a capability of extreme acceleration, uh, the objects could have seemed to disappear. This, this disappearance characteristic of these objects was known already by the Air Force in the summer of 1947 and uh, put into a, some documents that are published in a book, uh, the FBI CIA UFO Connection, a book I wrote several years ago, uh, which really sh shows the uh, what happened in the early days and how the FBI and CIA was involved in the Air Force. But there's a document in there where they describe the characteristics of these things that were flying around. One of the characteristics was to suddenly appear as if dropping down from above and then bingo, there it is. And also sudden disappearance, almost like complete disintegration, as if something didn't move and just sort of faded out of existence or whatever, disintegrating, whatever that would mean. So these characteristics of the objects have been known for a long time. How they do it is a, still anyway's guess. So we're still a long ways away, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as you and I know, I mean, what, do you believe that, uh, the, that we have craft in our... Uh, in our um, storage units in our U.S. government facilities? Uh, well, I wouldn't be surprised. Either way, of course, we've had stories in both directions. There's nothing, nothing has ever crashed, or there have been numerous crashes, and the truth might lie somewhere in between. Uh, this is not... I haven't been... Uh, 
spending a lot of time studying evidence evidence for crashes. I'm certainly aware of the stuff going on in Roswell and Aztec and uh, other other areas where crashes supposedly have occurred. But that's a that's a tough road to hoe to, to prove to everybody's satisfaction that something there has happened there. I personally think that the Roswell case is quote real unquote in, in the sense of being um, an actual uh, not made from here craft. The crash, you know, I, my opinion is based on the testimony of Jesse Marcel when he first started talking about it, long before there was any hype and uh, controversy. <clears throat> Here's a quote from someone. This is a quote from someone I have spoken to off the record and someone I, I had interviewed Rick Doty and I threw this quote at him. Um, and he said that it sounds right out of the Air Force handbook, but the quote is, Sometimes it's too easy. Deception doesn't have to be convincing. It just has to have enough layers so it's incontrovertible without being confirmable. So do we have a part of the U.S. government that actively researches UFO activity? Well, I don't, I don't know. I certainly can't point to any particular location where there might be. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were. After all, I, even if you ignore the crashes, for the moment, and just consider everything that's been seen and recorded on photos and video and uh, things like landing traces and, of course, multiple witness sightings and magnetic cases and uh, radar and so on, all that stuff that adds up to the idea that at least some so-called UFOs are craft not made here. And non-human uh, entities uh, presumably are responsible for these uh, these craft. In your book, the uh, the FBI CIA UFO connection, the hidden UFO activities of USA intelligence agencies, um, says um, within the book there's proof. And uh, without giving away the whole book away, um, what are we talking about? Well, I'm talking about the uh, sightings, well-reported sightings that occur in the uh, Party Blue Book files and in other other files of uh, sightings that people have made. Uh, the, the, the book sticks. The time frame of the book is primarily from 1947 to about 1953. Uh, In-depth analysis of uh, what the Air Force did what the FBI did. The FBI learned things from the Air Force that the Air Force didn't tell anybody else. Like for one of the most interesting uh, dichotomies was on the uh, on August 20, uh, July 29, 1952, when General John A. Sanford, the head of uh, uh, Air Force Intelligence, gave a press conference uh, to essentially explain away the hundreds of sightings that had happened over the previous couple of weeks. And uh, in his press conference, he said that uh, there were uh, credible people making incredible reports, the words to that effect. Nevertheless, as far as he was concerned, it was all natural phenomena. And in particular, the radar sightings over Washington, D.C. that had occurred on two weekends. The radar sightings were due to temperature inversions, according to him. Not that he knew much about it, was a physicist, but that's supposedly what he was gathering from what his uh, what he had been told by several officers who had analyzed these sightings of the blue book at that time. Anyway, on the same day and probably probably about the same time, Stafford was telling the assembled press that there was nothing to it, all to be explained. An FBI guy was in the uh, office of the uh, Air Force Intelligence and getting a debriefing on, uh, uh, getting a briefing on uh, the uh, flying saucer situation and why there were so many sightings and so on. And the FBI guy was told that 
Uh, there are several percent of the sightings, two to three percent or so, which they had uh, in, sort of like incontrovertible evidence that something strange. Coincidence of multiple witness plus uh, radar plus, uh, well, some cases other other types of effects and so on. And these sightings could not be explained. And some top-level Air Force people were seriously considering, quote, interplanetary ships, unquote. That was, a, that was a paper found in the FBI file that can't be found in the, in the Air Force file. I, I've never seen any document out of the Air Force Project Google file, which uh, indicated that some top-level people were seriously considering uh, um, interplanetary as the explanation. That same sort of a feeling of what was going on was reported again in October of, uh, to the FBI again in October of 1952 when another document in the FBI file talks about the uh, top-level opinion that uh, there's still, some people still think that this could be extraterrestrial. So anyway, you'll find cases in there which, uh, in my opinion, are unexplainable as examples of why the Air Force, some Air Force people would consider uh, interplanetary as an explanation. What would you say, and this is your opinion only, but is there a cover-up mechanism that has been successful that can be identified? And the reason I ask this is because if, if we can find a, a mechanism that is capable of, of a cover-up of this magnitude, that's further evidence of a cover-up. So is, is there a, a visible cover-up mechanism? Well, a cover-up is a cover-up of the cover-up. Uh, I have long said the main source of cover-up is what I call a self-cover-up. Nobody or a few people want this to be true. There's enough problems on the earth without introducing the uncertainty they're certainly sure to follow the admission that UFOs are real as extraterrestrials flying around. We don't know what they're doing here. We don't know how they got here, why they're here, whatever, and so on. The, there may very well be an orchestrated cover-up. Now, we certainly hear things like men in black type of tales where supposedly witnesses are told to shut up or be shut up. Uh, but like I said, I think the, what makes this cover-up situation so effective without being so being entirely obvious is that each person sort of buys into the cover-up. Most people do. Uh, some people who investigate these things get to the point where they say, well, I, can, I can't cover up the, the truth, more or less. But a lot of people, most people, consider this to be uh, at the bottom of the uh, list of important things to do, uh, down, the, down with uh, which is the best way to get to work, to avoid the traffic jam and stuff like that. Uh, they're not really thinking about UFOs except for the witnesses. UFO witnesses and a few people who are been enlightened by studying reports uh, may be able to accept the idea that there's something going on, but most people a little bit of no attention to the subject and uh, I'm just as happy when somebody lies and says or makes up a, an explanation. Consider for example in 1986 in November there was a Boeing 747 jet aircraft carrying wine from Reykjavik starting off at Paris but going over the uh, North Pole area uh, to land at uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, during that um, during their tra their trip as they crossed uh, on a great circle route, route from Reykjavik, Iceland to Anchorage, they crossed uh, from Canada into the United States and began seeing strange things flying around outside the aircraft. And uh, then two objects with what looked like exhaust ports of flames or something suddenly appeared right in front of this 747 that's doing about 600 miles an hour or 500 miles an hour. And uh, these two things are one above the other for a couple of minutes, then they reorient to a side by side. 
And then they fly along for four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes like that. And then they suddenly disappear from being in front of the aircraft. And uh, the captain looks, to the, look, looking around to see where they went. He looks behind him and to the left, and he sees what he calls the silhouette of a gigantic space spacecraft. Now uh, uh, this sighting made international news because the uh, pilots talked about it when they landed uh, a few days. Uh, a couple of days later, they landed in uh, Tokyo and uh, told some of their friends. And between the time of and November 14th and 17th, uh, I forget which date, uh, that he uh, that this the sighting took place. And Christmas time, between then, they, they pilots talked to various people. Word got to an American reporter. He called up the uh, uh, airport. Uh, 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 Anchorage, Alaska, and uh, the reporter called up the Freedom of Information Act officer, Public Affairs officer, uh, Anchorage Air Force, Anchorage Airport, and that that guy confirmed that there had been a sighting. And so this story was written up and made national news. It made such a big splash in the news that um, the FAA, the Federal Aeronautics Administration, decided they had to investigate because radar had been involved. Well, without going into all the details of the site, which by the way are in that book, the FBI, CIA, UFO Connection, and I discussed this particular sighting. Uh, the uh, Air Force investigated and essentially found whatever the claim that the radar was, something that had, something had to do with the weather that affected the radar. They, uh, they never even discussed the um, visual sighting themselves. The well-known skeptic Phil Class at the time claimed that they, they saw two planets, Mars and Jupiter, up in the sky. Um, and for some reason, I thought they were in front of the aircraft, flying along and moving and so on. And they published a story about, published, published the explanation that the people had seen a couple of planets, and I pointed out that if Mars and Jupiter were to appear one above the other at one time in the night, they're never going to reorient themselves side by side. <laughs> so that ruled out that explanation, and other explanations were also ruled out. Another example of a sort of like the desire to cover the whole thing up um, was the uh, November 2004, was it? Um, O'Hare Airport sighting where people saw a donut shape, no, a round disc, a grayish disc like thing hovering over one of the uh, portions of the airport and it was zipping straight up and the guy was right underneath it it looked like it cut a hole right through the clouds. Now, the official explanation for this sighting you know, occurred at like 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon uh, in November of, of 2000, whatever the year was, 2004. Um, even though it occurred during the, when it was still daylight, the first explanation offered by the FAA was that it was uh, uh, effective lights ground lights on clouds, which made no sense. The person, person saw it, seeing this thing say it was dark compared to the uh, cloudy, uh, cloud overcast. And then when, uh, the, uh, when, a, when the ground lights reflected off clouds, the explanation didn't fly, they said, oh, well, it was some weather phenomenon, method of that. Now, this to me indicates more or less a desire to ignore the uh, what was factual in favor of what you want it to be, which is nothing. You don't want it to be no no sighting at all, so you accept any explanation, like the official government explanation, the Air Force explanation for Kenneth Arnold sighting way back in June 24, 1947, uh, is, one, is one of the first explanations offered for UFO sightings. That it was a mirage. Anybody who knows anything about mirages knows that it was ne never 
reflect light like sunlight or any type of reflection like that. And uh, a mirage, the mirage of the mountain peaks would be the explanation. Mountain peak mirages stay over the mountain peaks. They don't go left to right sideways, like these objects were traveling from the left to the right over a long distance. No mountaintop mirage would appear to do that. So I think the, the main reason why this, this cover-up effect is, is, is effective is that uh, most people want to accept it. Uh, there's nothing going on and uh, intentionally avoid uh, getting involved is at all possible. If you become a witness, of course, then things change. So we have a proclivity of, of not <laughs> wanting to get involved in just about everything, which, which, which works out really well in this case, right? Yeah. <laughs> Until you become a witness. Exactly. And I often said, when more than 50% of the people are witnesses, maybe 90%, I don't know, some percentage, somebody's going to stand up and say, hey, look, they're real. This is what I call the uh, ever has no clothes effect. Some, somebody will stand up and say, look, they're real. And everybody was nod, yes, yes, we knew it all along. Do you think we're getting closer to disclosure? Is there going to be disclosure? Well, I keep thinking we, we seem to be inching, inching in that direction. And, and the next generation of uh, the next generation of people, including scientists, uh, will be more open to. Uh, Suggestion, I think, after all the work many of us have done in analyzing various cases. Uh, it's like, uh, was it Max Planck who said, uh, new ideas don't get, don't win by themselves, but they wait, they have to wait till the older generation dies off and then the newer generation accepts the new ideas. That's not the exact wording, but that's the idea of what he, what he said. So if we have disclosure by, let's say, the U.S. government, and many people don't actually trust the U.S. government, so um, would that would that disclosure be worth anything um, without uh, physical evidence? Well, I guess it would depend on uh, who made it. Uh, like Stan Friedman, a famous UFO ufologist who died a few months ago, um, he used to say, when... Uh, Two universally accepted people who are universally accepted to be telling the truth. Uh, the Pope and Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite was a, a news uh, presenter back in the 60s, 70s, and so on. Uh, but anyway, a well-known newsman and the Pope were to say UFOs are real. People might begin to believe it. Point being, you got to find somebody who's got uh, sufficient authority believability, credibility, whatever, whatever you want to call it, it has to make the announcement or have a whole group of people make the announcement all together or something like that. Uh, then it might, it might hold, take and hold on. One thing's for sure, the press would grab onto it immediately and presumably run it down to its truth value. Either there really are things going on or there, are, there aren't. And the uh, disclosure is a fake. Uh, as long as the disclosure is not a fake, um, people will have to admit to the truth by the monster. In your opinion, what are a, one or two of the top UFO events in our history that we shouldn't let go and we should still be digging deeper in to find more? I have some that I like myself that I've analyzed. Uh, there's, there's a lot of cases that uh, people could say uh, build a strong case for something real and unusual going on. Uh, it's easy to answer your question by saying, oh, let's, let's concentrate on Roswell. Uh, that's how, if, if you can get hardware out of the Roswell case, then fine, you got you got your proof that you don't need anything else. If it's, if it's undeniably provable. 
Right now, there are supposedly artifacts floating around, but um, we, we don't really know uh, where they come from, what, what it might have to do with uh, UFOs. You can pick a, pick a case and analyze it on your own. You see, to some extent, it comes down to who do you trust. You're going to trust somebody else to tell you the truth about UFOs. And I've discovered that you can't trust anybody. You can't even trust yourself because you can make a mistake. Excellent point. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it may be true that the only way people are going to uh, accept this is true is each person does some investigation on his own, you might say, um, and comes up with some answer. But they're real or they're not. And why that answer, why, or why he or she arrives at that answer. Do you still feel the need to get out there and work on this problem until there's a solution? Well, I'll probably work on it as long as I can work on things. Whether there'll be a solution by that time or not, I don't know. Uh, this is the recent publicity about the Navy fire jet uh, sightings is a, an interesting example of the situation where the initial press interest was there, and there were articles in the uh, major newspapers and all over the world uh, about the Navy, the videos that supposedly show Navy jets recording the presence of uh, unknown objects not made by us, supposedly. Um, right now, that's undergoing extreme investigation to find out if that is true or, or not. But the, uh, re the response of the general press was to treat it as a um, treated seriously because of the source. Uh, maybe, maybe people who presumably know what they're doing, uh, being involved with uh, detections of objects that seem to be able to do things we can't we can't do ourselves. Uh, Bruce Maccabee, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, been a great, great, great pleasure. I thank you very, very much for joining me tonight. And um, I hope to hear from you again very soon. And if every, why don't you want more time, please, if you would mention um, your website and um, where they can get your books. Okay. Our website is Brumac at dot brumac dot mysite dot com b r u m a c dot m y s i t e dot com brumac dot mysite dot com and you can get my uh, actually four books uh, at the uh, from Amazon the first first one is the FBI CIA UFO connection uh, which I wrote it was published in twenty fourteen. And then uh, Abduction in My Family, which is a book that is really two books in one, a fact book built into a fiction story, but it's designed to illustrate what happens when you bring abductions into the picture. Uh, so there's that. And then there's Three Minutes in June. Uh, you know, the only book to analyze the Kenneth Arnold case, which surprised me when I sort of reviewed the literature, the Kenneth Arnold case appears virtually every book on UFOs, uh, if, if the book covers any, it covers old cases of it, uh, just about everybody says, mentions Kenneth Arnold and his sighting and then go on to other things. Uh, so I decided to write a book that concentrated on his sighting itself. I figured you should know, if, if you think there's a new phenomenon going on, you should know the most you can about the, the initial detection of that phenomenon to uh, decide whether or not there really was something. And so I, uh, in my book, I've published four different um, recitations of the case by Kenneth Arnold himself, and my, what I call an analytic history of his sightings and the explanations that were offered. And uh, uh, I've, got, I've shown that the explanations didn't make any sense. And then the uh, fourth book is called 
the legacy of 1952, the year of UFO. 1952 is when the uh, uh, summer, June, July, August time frame, the Air Force collected the most sightings they ever had in a short period of time like that. And there were sightings there were, are coming so rapidly that uh, in late July, there are as many as uh, 30 or 40 per day uh, that were being recorded. And of course, then the lid blew off when there were sightings over over the White House area, the Washington D.C. area, on two different weekends, the weekend of the 19th and the weekend of the 26th of uh, July, followed by uh, General Sanford's press conference. And so that sort of set the tone for how the Air Force handled the uh, situation for the rest of the time, all the way up to when Blue Book closed. Project Blue Book closed in 1969. So anyway, if you want to know how we, uh, the, if you want to know how we are, how we got to where we are, uh, you read this book, The uh, Legacy of 1952. They're all available at Amazon. Just look up my name on Amazon, you'll find all the books. And some, some that are very old too, some that are almost 20 years old. So be sure you pick out the ones that are recent. And again, it was my pleasure to have Dr. Bruce McAbee in the studio tonight. Dr. McAbee, thank you very, very much. Thank you for inviting me. My Alien Life Podcast. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and at podbean.com and please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. Music